0: ugp.net Good morning and welcome to The Light 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogi, you may call 525-1859 or on your all-tell cellular phone, star-887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a call-in Uh, Talk show where you can uh, dictate your question, go on the air live, and as you're studying God's Word, if there's a question that's come up or some issue that you would like counsel on biblically, well, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number is 525-1859 or toll free at 877-WAGP980. Uh, When you uh, call, you can dictate your question or, again, go on the air live, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, for the Bible line, at wagp.net. So, as always, Rick, it's great to be here today.
0: It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of questions that have already come in, and one left over from last week that we said we'd expand on. The listener would like to know if you have to be saved in a church and if you have to be baptized to be saved. He's read the Bible several times and feels that he is saved and wants to know, does he have to make a public decoration and attend a church and be baptized?
1: Well, those are all great questions. And certainly, no, you don't have to be saved in a church building. If you think about it for just a moment, for nearly three centuries, there were no church buildings. Uh, The church met in open fields. They met in houses. They met... Uh, Just about wherever they could find a spot to gather. Uh, So in the strictest sense, no, there were no church buildings. That's something rather uh, almost 300 years after Christianity started, though. They did find one particular mosaic floor that could date as early as 198, Uh, AD. But if that's the case, then that would be the very first church building. But even that mosaic is a little bit debatable. Uh, Do you need to be baptized to be saved? Well, surely not in any denomination or church that says you need to be. Well, they're teaching a different gospel. Uh, There are verses that sometimes are used to defend this position. I was behind a car yesterday, and it had two verses of scripture quoted. And I thought, isn't that typical? Those are the two verses that people most often use to teach that baptism is part of the plan of salvation, and so sometimes in the Church of Christ or the Christian church denominations, some disciples of Christ' churches they'll say, uh, "Repent, believe, confess, and be baptized, and they'll speak of a four stage uh, plan that is necessary to be completely fulfilled in order to be saved. Well, let me deal with those. First, repent and believe. They're the flip side of the same coin. When Paul is asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. When Peter is asked, brethren, what shall we do? Again, the same question. What do we need to do to get right with God? In one word, he says, repent. The word metaneo, the verb, means to change your mind. We have to change our mind. and In that particular issue, they needed to change their mind about Christ, they said he was just a man, so much so that they crucified him as a blasphemer. That was their desire. Uh, they couldn't, of course, pull off that charge, so they got him on a political charge. And Peter says, "Change your mind. You know, you you crucified the Prince of Glory. Receive him for who he is. That he's Lord." So the word repent can mean different things and different connotations in the New Testament. But in either case, uh, when you believe on the Lord Jesus, you've turned to Christ from your sin. You know, sometimes uh, the gospel is front-loaded with what I call lordship salvation. And I I believe that you cannot receive what Christ gives unless you uh, receive him for who he is. I, I believe the Bible teaches that. But I think sometimes we make lordship salvation so complicated that a child would never be able to understand it. And yet children can understand the gospel. Sometimes I will see people who teach lordship salvation. What's so odd is that some of the books or pamphlets that they write for children don't teach it in the same, same way they would present it to an adult. Well, is there one gospel for children and a different for adults? Of course not. But if a person is truly coming to the Lord Jesus, they're coming for forgiveness of sin. And implicit in coming to him is recognizing, because of the convicting work of the Spirit, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Implicit in coming to Christ is a recognition that my sin is evil, that it's wrong, and it needs forgiveness. And if we really see it as evil, then we want God to change it. So it's impossible to believe in Christ as your personal Savior without also embracing him as Lord. But we also recognize that there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament given to save people as to how they should live once they've received Christ as Lord. So those commands would make absolutely no sense whatsoever if indeed uh, it all happened at the moment of conversion. So when you believe you repent, then the verses that are often used— uh, to teach that baptism saves. There are really two that are kind of headquarters for these groups. And again, they're, they're teaching a different gospel. You say, are they Christians? Of course not. They're not believers. They're teaching a false gospel. They are no more believers than the people um, in Galatia, the false teachers who had come in, who had added just one work to the plan of salvation, namely circumcision. They do the same today. They say you have to come through the vestibule of baptism or circumcision in that day in order to be saved. And the verse they use often is Acts 2 and verse 38, where it says, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Now, the word that is translated here, for, the for the little Greek Particle is a three-letter word in Greek that can mean different things in different contexts, just like the word for in English can mean different things. Uh, Doesn't mean in order to, or because of let's read it both ways. Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order for the forgiveness of sins. There you're making baptism, baptism condition as a condition for salvation. And that's what these groups do. And so they say, unless you're baptized, you won't be saved. Or could you read it? Repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sin. That's really the sense of the word here. It's used that way when they repented at the preaching. The word at is the same Greek word here translated for at the preaching of John the Baptist or because of the preaching of John the Baptist. So there are many other instances I could illustrate in the New Testament, where the word carries that meaning, Uh, not to mention the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to them that believe, you'd want to ask, well, if the gospel is God's power to save us, what is the gospel? Well, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so he specifically defines and defends what the gospel is. He says, um, uh, he says that for I delivered to you is of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he prefaces that statement in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel. And then he defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptism is not a part of it. In fact, in the same epistle in 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 17, the apostle Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What does that imply? It tells you that baptism is not a part of the gospel, that the two are separate. And so anyone who would make baptism a condition for salvation is denying the sufficiency of Christ, and they're infusing in baptism some, you know, salvific power that the New Testament does not give it. The other verse that is typically used that was also on this uh, sign behind this car that I was behind yesterday, it says, he who believes and has been baptized shall be saved. He who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Let me read that again. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, let me read how the verse does not read. It does not read, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved and has not been baptized shall be condemned. No, a man's condemnation is based on his unbelief. Uh, you could paraphrase it in these words in New Testament Uh, terminology in perspective. He was believed and has openly, publicly confessed his faith shall be saved. Now, Jesus was not teaching that the confession of your faith saved you. He was not teaching that baptism saved you. And by the way, that's how they confessed their faith in the first century. It was through baptism. But he was teaching that if you truly inwardly possess him as Savior, you will be willing to outwardly confess him as Lord. And so in Matthew ten thirty two, he says, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Sometimes you will meet people who will say, well, salvation is a very private, very personal thing. And that's kind of a half-truth. It is a personal, private thing in that only you can make that decision yourself in your heart. But if you have made it, it becomes very public. That's what the New Testament teaches. And the manner in which it was made public in the New Testament era was baptism. Again, a sign and a symbol of what has happened inside of my heart. And when you understand baptism, it really makes sense because the word baptizo means to immerse. And so when one is brought under the water and up from the water, And by the way, there is a perfectly good Greek word in the New Testament for sprinkling. It's never used in reference to this ordinance. Sometimes people will say, I was baptized as a baby. Not really. You were ratizod, but you weren't baptized. If I can uh, anglicize some Greek words here. Uh, You were sprinkled, but you were not immersed. They didn't take you as a little infant and put your whole body and head underneath the water. They just dripped a few drops on you. Well, sprinkling doesn't illustrate death, burial, and resurrection, but immersion does. And so when you get baptized, you're really bragging on Jesus. Every once in a while, I will meet someone who will say, well... Pastor, I've received Christ, and I know I need to get baptized after my conversion. The first time they might say I was baptized was as an infant, or I was baptized as an adult, but I realized I wasn't saved, so I want to do it again. But I want to wait until I grow and mature a little bit in my faith. And of course, uh, that's an erroneous view of baptism. Baptism is not about your lifestyle or how consistent you are or how faithful you are as a believer. You're not bragging on yourself. You're bragging on Jesus. You're saying, listen, the reason I am going into heaven is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'm giving glory to God. That's what baptism is about. And that's why in the New Testament, they typically baptize someone the same hour, the same day they became a believer. Now, they understood baptism much more clearly than we do, and now we live in a day where people are so balled up and messed up because of the traditions that have developed and were passed down as almost authoritative, that you have to re-educate people, that infant baptism is wrong, uh, that baptism somehow saves is wrong, or it washes away sin, that that's wrong. It's a symbol. But it is more than a symbol. It is a step of obedience that God asks you to take uh, once you are truly legitimately saved. Those are great questions. I appreciate them. And if any caller maybe has more questions about baptism or you're confused, I wrote a 12, 13-page handout where I went through virtually every verse in the New Testament on baptism. Uh, this is available through our discovery class, but if you call Community Bible Church, we'll be happy to email it to you if that would help you in your study of God's Word. 525-1859 or toll-free at 877-WAGP980 or email us directly here into the studio at tbl, for the Bible line, tbl at net.
0: Very good. Uh, we've got another question that just came in, a caller Well, we always give preference to live callers, and we have one standing by right now, so we'll get to that other one in a second. But in the meantime, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. Um, I basically have two questions. The first one is I'm kind of doing a study on staff, sticks, and rods of the Bible. And I believe this weekend I heard Erwin Lutzer say he was talking about the staff that Moses carried. And he said, that which you picked up in the desert... I will teach you by, and I wondered if you could tell me where that is in the Bible or possibly I heard it wrong.
1: I think you heard it wrong. I don't think that's a direct quote, but let me help you in terms of your study of it. Um, There are some tools that I think can be extremely helpful for Christians to have in their library. Um, One is a Bible dictionary uh, there's uh, a number of Bible dictionaries that are out there. There's a one-volume Bible dictionary called the New Bible Dictionary. It first came out in the 1960s. I think it's gone through maybe 10 or 12 printings. Uh, someone called me just a few weeks ago, and they said, oh, I've got a, you know a 1980s version of the um, New Bible Dictionary. Do you think I should update or should I change it? Well, let me just say, if you bought the most recent printing, which did come out in this decade, uh, there would be very, very little change in terms of the articles or the context, uh, contents. Usually the only kinds of things that change would be um, archaeological finds. Uh, there's not a whole lot that's been discovered in terms of what words mean or uh, you know uh, the meaning of a staff or whatever. You know, in the last hundred years, uh, most of the research has been done, and it's pretty well set. But there might be some archaeological find that would be of significance. For instance, in the first uh, edition of the New Bible Dictionary that came out, I think in 1961, they had not yet discovered a a uh, stone that was found at Caesarea Philippi. Or, excuse me, not at Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea by the Sea. Uh, that was um, had imprinted on it the words Pontius Pilate with the date. Now, some of the critics of the Bible for a long time said, oh, you know, the Bible, it's unreliable. It mentions people like the Hittites or even this guy Pontius Pilate. There's no historical evidence whatsoever that there was even such a governor. Well, there wasn't until 1963. And then they unearthed this stone and they found his name written on the cornerstone, as the governor who was involved in the construction of a particular building there in Caesarea, by the sea, so a newer edition might bring those things out. But if you're trying to, you know, buy one and save some money, uh, you can find them used. And you know, a, a, a new Bible dictionary—I'm not sure what it sells for, but it's probably a hundred dollars. Uh, you probably find it online used for ten dollars with some shipping. Uh, so that would be a great resource to have. And if you looked, for instance, in that particular uh, one volume book that's about six or 700 pages long, there's a great article in there on staffs. And it will talk about the different Hebrew words, the different Greek words that are used, uh, the word for a rod and so forth. And it would be very illuminating to you. If you wanted to spend a little bit more money, there's a five-volume work called the Zondervan Bible Encyclopedia, which does the same thing as a Bible dictionary, but with much more specificity. Uh, probably more information that you'd want in most situations, and again, that would be expensive, but you could probably find it used because it's been out for, you know, 25 years, an old edition uh, that very often you can buy as brand new, and that. You know, sometimes people buy these, you know, five-volume works, and they never use them, or even crack the binding, and then they die, or a pastor dies, and you can get some really great prices at Half.com. That's the eBay side of used books, or at Amazon as well for used books. So that's what I would suggest that you do, because I could spend the next thirty minutes talking to you about the words for staff and rods and sticks, and and so I'm going to teach you how to fish here and send you to. Uh, to some of those resources. Great question. Let's go to the next one this morning, Rick.
0: All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll-free 877-WAGP980. And our next listener um, is uh, says that she had recently heard about the Geneva Bible and would like your opinion
1: of this translation. All right. I have a copy of the Geneva Bible in my study, Um, But before I respond to that, we always give live callers preference. So I'll come back to that question, and let's go to line three where we have a caller waiting. Good morning, caller. Thanks for holding. You
0: are on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, I have a quick question. I hope um, I've heard this twice in the last month, and it just sort of smacks of maybe the gap theory, but you correct me if I'm wrong. Um, In the book of Genesis where God said it was good, that the creation was good, they they kind of indicate that Satan was not on the earth at that point in time because God said it was good and it therefore in three two I believe it was where he you know Satan t- tempts
1: Eve that there's a a time when Satan was put down and I can't find where Satan is it's down. Well, it's a, good, it's a good question. Um, l- let me give some broad parameters, and there are some good people who differ on this. It's certainly not a test of orthodoxy, but I'll give you my view on it. Number one, we know that the, I think, the angels were created before God ever spoke the world into existence. Now, some people will differ with that, but Job, for instance, speaks about how the angels sang as God laid the foundations for the world. And so some would argue, well, God must have therefore made—based on this fact that everything that God made was good, and certainly everything that God has ever made is good. Uh, God's never created evil, ever. Um, But that— the question becomes is when he makes that declaration in the early chapters of Genesis, is he speaking of man and the creation that he has made, namely the earth and the universe, or is he including the angelic realm in there? And if you want to include the angelic realm in there, then you have to say that, uh, the angels were created sometime after day one. And when nobody would know because the Bible doesn't tell us. And so, but if that's your view of this is good, that he's not referring to the immediate creation that he made, but even angels as well, then you have to put uh, the creation of angels uh, sometime in the six days of creation. Your guess is good as anybody else's, I suppose. And then you have to put the fall of Satan somewhere after the creation of the world. And then it becomes, well, when did Satan fall and so forth? Well, Personally, I I think that, you know, that's not how it happened. I think, number one, that uh, the world was created, but before the world was created, angels were already in view. And so, again, you know, some would put it right after day one, because Job would say that the angels were there singing as God laid the foundations of the world. It seems to me that angels were in existence ever before. God created uh, Adam ever before he spoke the universe into existence that that was something that took place in eternity past and I have a message on that in our series on angelology and I walk through it for an hour but let me just give you one verse to kind of ponder and it's found in um, Romans chapter 5 which by the way we are studying on Sunday mornings a verse by verse exposition of the great epistle to the Romans and we'll be back in Romans 5 this Sunday as we look at the Uh, Started this chapter, but he says in Romans 5 and verse 12, therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so it tells us that sin entered into the world, didn't come into existence, but entered into the world. Why? Because it was already in existence. And so... When God created Adam, he was indeed good, he was perfect, all of his creation was good and perfect, but sin entered into the world, into time and space, into the created universe when Adam sinned. And so when you come to Romans the 8th chapter, it's going to also elucidate the truth that when Adam fell, all of creation fell with it. And so sin enters into the world, doesn't come into existence, because we know Satan obviously was a created being before uh, Adam ever fell, Um, because he's there in the garden uh, deceiving Eve, and she is deceived, and then Adam sins with his eyes wide open. He doesn't sin because of deception. He still sins because he willfully breaks the commandment of God. And so sin enters into the world, this world that is already good and perfect, uh, but it enters into the universe and into the creation because of Adam's sin. So it, again, it it comes down to how you qualify when God said all that he made was good. Is he referring to what he's just described where angels are not mentioned one bit in chapters one or two? Um, and it appears again that There's a short period of time after the uh, creation of the world uh, in Adam is made that the devil, who's already a fallen being, comes into the garden. You know, so there are some people say, well, his fall had to happen, you know, after the world was created and after God saw all that he made and said it was very good. And after Adam was made, then Satan fell. Well, you know, that's a possibility. And again, I wouldn't make it a test of fellowship, but I think it's also a very strong possibility and I think a preferable argument, and it's the argument that most people have held in the history of the church, that Satan fell in eternity past. And so Jesus talks about Satan, who is fallen from heaven. His fall is described. The timing is not specifically given. So it is open for debate. It's not a test of orthodoxy. But if you listen to my tape on the fall of Satan, I walk through why I believe um, he fell before the creation of the world. And that is in our Angelology series. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right, very good. We'll go back to the one about the Geneva Bible that mm-hmm. the woman recently acquired.
1: Right. I have the Geneva Bible, and it's a good translation of the Bible. Sometimes people say, well, you know, what did uh, early Americans use? They'll say, they used the King James, and if the King James was good enough for them, it would be good enough for us. Actually, the early Americans didn't use the King James Bible, they used the Geneva Bible. Uh, The King James had not uh, come into America. And, well, I mean, some people had copies, but it was not widely used until about 100 years into the history of our nation. And what happened with the Geneva Bible, and by the way, the 1611 King James Bible, which uh, the Church of England, you know, condemn the Geneva Bible, but nonetheless, um, 80% of the King James is directly, uh, direct translation from the Geneva Bible, the 1611 translation. But like with any other translation, time progressed and the translation was not kept up. Uh, The 1611 King James Bible, what people say sometimes in defiance of the new King James translation, they'll say, well, I believe in the old King James Bible versus the New King James that came out in the 1980s, first in the New Testament and then the entire Bible. Well, the truth is the the New Testament came out, I think, in 78 and then the entire Bible maybe in 81. Don't quote me on those dates, but in that time frame. Well, actually, they're not even reading the old King James Bible. When you pick up a translation called the King James Bible, the old King James, it's not the 1611 version. In fact, uh, if you own, some guy told me I have a I own the 1611, and I read out of the 1611. I said, you ought to have that in a lockbox. It will sell for at least $150,000. It's worth quite a bit of money. Um, No, I doubt he uh, has the old King James. In fact, people who are reading what we today call the old King James are actually reading the fifth revision of the King James. It was redone in 1613 and 1632 and so forth, all the way up until... Uh, seventeen sixty nine so they 're reading the fifth revision, and between the sixteen eleven and the seventeen sixty nine there 's over a hundred thousand changes not that god 's word changes, it never does, but the English language was rapidly Um, changing that they had to use English that reflect the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic of the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures. And so that's always the challenge. And so when the Geneva Bible came out, it was a beautiful translation. And it was, uh, with time, became archaic. And because it was not habitually updated like the King James, then the King James became understandable. And people said, I can read this Bible and I can understand it. Now, we read the King James today, the old King James, and people say, I can understand it because there's so many terms that um, mean different things in the 16 and 1700s than what they mean today. If you read Philippians 4, for instance, in your King James, it says, be careful about nothing. Well, I'm sitting here on Highway 280 this morning, when I pull out of the parking lot for lunch, I'm going to look both ways and be very careful. Well, the newer translations would say, be anxious for nothing or be worried about nothing. But the words anxious and worried didn't even exist when the King James Version was done. And so the way you said it in the 16 and 1700s was, be careful for nothing. Uh, That may not communicate well today. And so there's a lot of archaic words. In fact, Dr. Norman Geisler, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, made a list of 100 words in the 1769 translation of the King James that today mean the exact opposite. So you need to read very, very carefully. Again, God's Word never changes. What does change is the receptor language. English changed and continues to change with time. And it will, there'll be a a need for newer translations. Certainly there are some that are better than others, some that are more literal than others. uh, But still, there's a need for newer translations. Anyway, that's a great question. So to answer your question, yes, the Geneva Bible, I have it. They did kind of an updated version uh, that came out a few years ago. Um, But You know, some of the the notes uh, are are very interesting. Uh, Some are helpful. Some aren't so helpful, in my opinion. But it was a a Bible that not only had the English tongue, but it had all these notes. And that's where the point of rub was, was in the notes. And it angered the king of England. And so he, uh, you know, made a proclamation, King James to have a new translation done without all these, quote-unquote, heretical notes. They weren't heretical, but they were differing views as to how we should understand things. So, for instance, the Church of England, when uh, the King James was done in 1611, was an Arminian church. They believed that you could lose your salvation. Uh, The notes in the Geneva Bible taught the doctrine of eternal security, that you could not lose your salvation. And so, now, what does the Bible teach? Well, the the Bible, whether it's King James or whatever translation, teaches eternal security. But the Church of England, in fact, to this day, uh, denies in the uh, 39 Articles of Faith the doctrine of eternal security. Now, there are many... Uh, People in the Church of England and its different counterparts and those who've left it who teach the doctrine of eternal security. But the 39 Articles of Faith teach assurance of salvation but not eternal security. And there is a difference. There are people who say, well, I know I'm saved. I'm assured of my salvation. I just don't know that I'll be saved 10 years from now or 15 years from now that I could renounce Christ and renounce the faith. No, the Bible teaches not only can you be assured of your salvation, you can know you're eternally secure. And the Bible teaches both. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next uh, next question. If you have a question you'd like to ask, again, the local number is 525-1859. The toll-free number is 877-987-7980. So,
0: All right, very good. Paula from Beaufort would like you to recommend a book that addresses uh, the or actually proves that the Bible is true and God's Word. A family member living in another state recently shared with her that she doesn't believe everything in the Bible, and uh, this listener would like to present proof in a book of other readable document format.
1: Did you ever put up on our website, by any chance yet, Rick, that, that publication I gave yes. you? Pull it up for me, if you will, oh, so right. that I can give the... The listeners uh, an exact read on it. Uh, Answers in Genesis, you hear Ken Ham sometimes with little short segments here on WAGP. Um, They've produced a lot of really great literature. And more recently, uh, they began to write some books on apologetics. And they just wrote a book entitled, How Do We Know the Bible is True? The general editors are Ken Ham and um, body uh, Hodge. Buddy Hodge. And a number of different contributors have written in it, including, you know, Ken and Ray Comfort and Carl Brogy. And I wrote the uh, article on the uniqueness of the Bible, which is a proof for the divine inspiration of the Bible. Now, a lot of the other articles deal with other issues. I also wrote a second article in there on the Protestant Reformation and why it's important. But, you know, one of the things that's very important to Ken Ham is to uh, prove the Bible is true in terms of the creation account. So here are some of the articles. Why are young people walking away from our churches? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, once Christian. Uh, Why are many Christian colleges shifting to a secular road? Who created God? Where did he come from? And the fifth chapter is, why is the Bible unique? And I wrote that chapter. So I go through five proofs for the divine inspiration of Scripture. I also did the, uh, go back uh, down a little bit, Uh, I also did uh, chapter 19 called The Importance of the Reformation. Um, So there's uh, different chapters. Again, a number of great um, authors in there that I think would be a a real encouragement to you. And I think if you read that chapter, you would have the ammunition that you would need to... uh, ask and answer the question, how to prove the Bible is true. But let me say that even, even if you don't know how to prove it and you have the opportunity to share it, people still know it's true because the word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so when they hear it, even though they may with their lips say, well, I don't think it's true, or how do I know it's true? They know it's true. In their heart, because it's alive and the Spirit of God pricks them with its truth. But there's some great evidences that God has given us to show the uniqueness of this book. All right, good question. Uh, So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, all the information is up there. You can see the book and the different authors, and um, I would suggest you buy it. I think it would be, and I don't make any money on the book, by the way, and they don't either. None of the authors make any money on it. it's uh, All the money goes to Answers in Genesis to help uh, some of the projects they're doing, like the Noah's Ark project that they're building right now. They're building a replica of Noah's Ark and things like that. Anyway, and
0: if they go to org, they can actually uh, click there and see a little... Snippet of your article,
1: okay, and I think too it's going to be in the uh, resource room if anyone's listening locally. Uh, the bookstore at Community Bible Church probably next Sunday. So let's go to the next uh, caller.
0: All right, thanks for holding Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, I just wanted to ask the pastor if he's familiar with Bodie Bacham and his writings. I know he's a pastor, I think in Texas. Yes, and um, his doctrinally very sound. Um, but he wrote a book, "What He Must Be to Marry My Daughter," and it's full of some great information and um, ideas.
1: His daughter also wrote a book, um, "Stay-at-Home Daughterhood," and um, I I've researched this a good bit. But the scriptures that they use um, could be taken either way, and. Um, I understand the Christian community, you know, girls go to college, and that's wonderful, and they become doctors, and, and, and I don't question that. But I was just wondering about the premises that are put forth in the Bauckham's books. Um, yeah, let me just first say, Vaughty Bauckham is a good man. He, he's, a, he's a fine man, and uh, he loves the Lord, and um, his ministry is, I think, largely— Uh, focused on trying to help people to raise their children well because we're living in a day when so many people have raised children in the church and when they get into college they turn their back on the evangelical you know bible faith um and i think he's reacting to that uh i think in some context he has overreacted now some people might take issue with me i i noticed um John MacArthur had a conference recently, about a year ago now, and a number of different pastors came and were invited, and Waddy Bauckham was one of them, and he did a workshop. He wasn't a plenary speaker, but he did one of the workshops, and then John MacArthur's associate pastor did a workshop on why Waddy Bauckham was wrong (laughs) on some of these issues. So they, they love each other as brothers in Christ, but they just differ on some of the applications that he makes. So I know there are some well-meaning people, and again, you know, in the end, it comes down to what God leads you as an individual to do, but they will um, say, "Well, listen, why don't I want to send my daughter to college uh, to spend, you know four years out from underneath my roof to be secularized in a university and uh, to become an apostate." And so they would argue to protect their daughters, say, they need to keep them at home. And and after all, they might say, uh, you know, if God's desire for them to be uh, married and then be a worker at home, why, why, why would I want to spend all that money? Uh, so there's not just uh, financial issues, though. That's not the primary reason behind his argument. It's primarily a protective issue. Well, it might be in some homes it would be very unwise. To send a daughter off to the university, depending on where she's at spiritually, and that you might be helping to finance spiritual disaster in her life. On the other hand, there may be some young lady who is indeed solid and mature in her faith, and she's going to go off to the university, and she's going to have a ministry there, and she's going to reach young women for Christ and she's going to be light and salt there, and she's going to challenge many of those young women who are given the mindset. It's just expected, it's considered the norm for young women today at the university, that when they leave the university, they're going to find secular employment or whatever kind of employment they will find, and when they start a family that they'll, their goal is to find good child care, and there's a whole system of thought that's antithetical to the model that God gives us in His word. And again, if someone's not really grounded in their faith, because remember everything you believe is based on something, I either read it in a book or I made it up or someone told me or the culture is teaching it. And so if my mind is not being renewed by the word of God, and unless I have some deep rooted convictions from the word of God, then a young Christian lady might easily be swayed to adopt the worldview that the average woman on the university campus has embraced. And so again, this is where we as dads and moms, we're not just modeling God's best, but we're teaching to the standard. Here's why your mother stayed home. This is what God said. And by the way, it's not a waste of money or time, not just in light of the ministry she might have. I think of my own daughter who went to Clemson University and she thought, well, dad, you know, I don't know if God will give me a husband, I certainly would like to get married. But if he doesn't, or he makes me wait a long time, then, you know, I want to get a degree that one, I might get some employment from, and two, a degree that might help me later on if I do get married and have children. So she majored in childhood education. During her years at Clemson University, she had a huge group of women around her, that she discipled and encouraged and taught God's word to. And I I remember those, some of those women. And even when she graduated, she ended up going on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for a year at Duke University. And when she was married, all these young ladies came and she was introducing into their way of thought what is now considered radical. To call a woman a worker at home, which is now the minority of women in America, is viewed as radical and a old-fashioned and, and weird. Uh, but it's not. And not to mention the degree that she received better equipped her and rounded her out in terms of being able to um, use some of the skills if she home educates her children. and I'm sure she will if that's what they choose to do. Uh, not to mention it broadened her platform. Now, uh, certainly someone does not have to go to college have a platform for God, but sometimes it's like, I have a son right now at Harvard Law School. If you ask him why he chose Harvard, he said, dad, I could care less about Harvard. I just needed the credentials because he wanted to, because of the things that God has put in his heart to do, he knew he needed some of those credentials to break into that world. Uh, Does he ascribe maybe to some of the things that he's taught there? No, Uh, he's like the token conservative there. Uh, they know he was in the Bush administration and other things, and he's viewed as a conservative. Well, what do you think, Mr. Brogy? And, you know, he's going to give a different viewpoint. But, boy, we need salt and light in places like that where men and women can be challenged uh, with a Christocentric, bibliocentric worldview. So I think ba- I think Avadi ba- you know, Bakum is wrong on some of these things. I, I, you know, I could do an analysis of his chapter. Maybe I should. Uh, i 've read it, so I know what he 's talking about, and I think he 's wrong on some of those things and I think uh, some people have you know adopted it too quickly and not realized that there are other good, godly uh, men who have a different view but again, I think he 's reacting to the tremendous failure rate, which i don 't think is rooted simply in the fact that women have gone off, say, to the university or that we have our kids sometimes in, um, you know, youth-oriented Sunday school class, and we need to adopt, you know, family-oriented Sunday school classes and things. It has very little to do with that. Um, there's a whole lot more that has to do with dads and moms and their walks with Jesus Christ and whether or not they are men and women of integrity. Uh, that's the biggest, those are some of the biggest issues. But anyway, it's a good question. I could get on that soapbox for a long time. Let's go to the next question, Rick.
0: All right. A listener is a new Christian and attends a Bible-believing church, goes to an adult Bible study, and spends time studying the Bible. As a new Christian, she'd like to know how she knows that her conversion is true and her faith will be strong enough to sustain her in the years to come. And it wasn't just as you called it this weekend, uh, a liver quiver experience?
1: Yeah, well, it's a fair question. Um, And what you're really talking about is whether or not someone has genuine assurance. We're talking about how do we know that my assurance is real? How to know that I know that I know? Because the Bible says you can know. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, or think, but know for sure. And so assurance of salvation, and what you might want to do is uh, go to search the Scriptures and listen to the Back to Basics series. And the very first message in the Back to Basics series deals with assurance of salvation in eternal security, okay? And uh, there's a number of uh, messages, there's three parts to it, three uh, one-hour messages that talk about the eternal security of the believer, and we deal with this whole issue of assurance, and we deal with false assurance. So initially, a person can be assured based on the witness of the Father. This is what the Father said in His Word, and based on the witness of the Father and what he said concerning his word, I can know I'm saved. A person can also have assurance based on the work of the Savior. This is what the Savior did. He didn't die for some of my sin or most of my sin, but all of my sin. And so I can have assurance on that basis. If salvation were earned in any way, shape, or form, no one could ever in this lifetime have an assurance of salvation. Because if it was partly based on you, And what you do to help achieve salvation, you would never know until you died whether God had put his stamp of approval on what you'd done. So there's the word of the Father, there's the work of Christ, but then there's the witness of the Spirit, where first the Spirit convicts you, he works on you, but then he comes to live inside of you where the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. And so we talk about that. Then we talk about a changed life. And so like when the Reformers talked about perseverance of the saints, if you ask today the average evangelical Christian, do you believe in the doctrine of perseverance, they'll say, oh, you mean once saved, always saved? Yeah, I believe that. Well, that was only one facet of the doctrine of perseverance as the reformers understood it. They were saying, no, if a person is a genuine Christian, their life changes. There is fruit. The fruit is not the root of your salvation. It's the evidence of your salvation. And there is perseverance. Someone doesn't renounce the faith or abandon the faith. Because if my salvation is true... I will continue on. And Jesus spoke about verses concerning perseverance. For instance, in the Olivet Discourse, where in this section of Scripture, he's dealing with the great tribulation period and what will unfold. And it's interesting, when you read Matthew 24, 4 through 14, that section of Scripture perfectly, perfectly perfectly, parallels what you find in Revelation 6. So Revelation 6, 1 and 2... Uh, the false Christ parallels Matthew 24, 5, and, and Matthew 24, 6, and 7 parallels Revelation 6, uh, 3 through 4, and so on. It, it just perfectly fits the whole chapter all the way through down through the sixth seal, which uh, culminates in Matthew twenty four twenty nine. But in this section where he's dealing with the great tribulation period, Jesus said this, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Now, Jesus was not teaching that your endurance or your perseverance saved you. But he was teaching, if you are saved, you will persevere. You will not during the time of the great tribulation period, to put it in that context, renounce Jesus and take the mark of the beast. Not if you've truly been saved. A true child of God will persevere. That's what 1 John 2.19 teaches. And again, people today do their theology by experience, but we're not to do it by experience. We put our experience under the authority of Scripture. And so he says, children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And that's what the Bible taught, that from the time the last hour began, the last days with the coming of the Spirit of God at Pentecost, just as God's men and God's women would go out and preach a true gospel and plant good seed— The spirit of Antichrist would also come and plant bad seed. So there's the coming Antichrist, and then there are Antichrists who are against Christ. And then he says, they went out from us, these false teachers, but they were not really of us. How so, John? For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. So John's point is, if you have it, you can't lose it you'll persevere. If you lost it, you never genuinely had it to begin with. That's what 2 Peter 2 teaches. That's what the book of Jude teaches. Peter talks about a a sow who's all cleaned up, but after he's all cleaned up, he goes back to the mud. He talks about a a dog who goes back and eats its vomit. Why? Because fundamentally, they're still dogs. They have disgusting habits. Fundamentally, they're still pigs. They love the dirt and the filth. So you can clean a guy up on the outside, but unless he's been transformed on the inside, he's not going to be saved. So I walk through and uh, go to searchthescriptures.org, listen to, click on the Back to the Basics series listen to the three one-hour talks on eternal security, and you'll know where you stand by the time you're done. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think maybe we can squeeze in another one.
0: All right. Very good. I know we had a live caller standing by. We weren't sure whether we'd be able to get him. I'm not sure whether my wife's going to be able to call him back real All right. Quick. That's all okay. right.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's right. do it with another dictated question, and maybe they can call back next week. All right. Uh, this listener... Um, oh, there it is. It's oh. ringing. Go ahead. Just put them on, and let's go for it.
0: Okay. Well, take a chance. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Please record you. Nope. Not them. All Right. Okay, that's uh, right. They're line two. She says, "Ah, there uh, we are." Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes. Good morning. Um, my question was this: I had a, a discussion recently with a Roman Catholic regarding the existence of purgatory, and it, w- it was it was very interesting how how heated that this person got when when challenged about the existence of purgatory. And my question to her was, you're, "What you're saying then is?" You can you can pray yourself, or, or or your works can get you out of hell, and I, and I I basically told her I said works will not save you, it it's not going to happen, and when I told her how she was to be saved, became very indignant and just absolutely did not like to be challenged on the existence of purgatory or the, the way to salvation. Right. And I'm just just wondering if, if you have any insight. Yeah, a
1: couple things. Uh, one, I would encourage you to go back and to read this book that we just mentioned that came out by Answers in Genesis. And the 16th chapter I wrote on the importance of the Protestant Reformation. And I deal with the issue of purgatory, among other things. Again, it comes down to ultimately an issue of authority, And uh, there is a book written between the two Testaments called Second Maccabees. And Roman Catholics, of course, believe that Second Maccabees is part of the canon of Scripture. And there it says to pray for the dead. Well, why would you pray for the dead if at the moment of death a man is in heaven or hell? Well, if a man's in purgatory, then you have good reason to pray for the dead. And so on November 1st, All Saints Day... In the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they pray for dead people who are in purgatory it 's an official holy day in the Roman Church where you pray for those who 've dead and who are in purgatory so uh, it becomes an issue of authority, and so I would just simply say to her, remember everything you believe is based on something so the question is what 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 does the Bible teach and um, most Catholics that you 're dealing with won 't even know that there's a book called Second Maccabees that they get the doctrine of purgatory from so I wouldn't probably raise the question and then have to defend why we believe in only 66 books though I have a whole series on that and why the intertestament books were never considered and should not be considered part of the canon of scripture if you want to hear it it's in our course in bibliology section 6 but I would just start with the Bible that you have and read some verses and makes it really clear. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We could spend a lot more time on that. If you want to call back next time, feel free to. Uh, we're out of time today. Several questions we didn't get to, but God willing, maybe we will come back to them next time. Hope you have a great day. May you walk with Jesus Christ and serve him fully.